doesn't meat cause cardiovascular disease, gout, and cancer? No, it doesn't. My psoriasis completely resolved. Check out this review on gut and digestion from Heart and Soil Supplements. After my cancer diagnosis and chemo treatments, I have constantly worried about getting cancer again. And as I age, I have noticed other health issues along the way, psoriasis being one of them. Over the years, I never really understood how food and products in your household and on your skin could affect those things and how toxic our environment really is. I started following Paul Saladino, have learned much about diet and household products. He then led me to trying hard and soil because I realized I wasn't getting enough animal products in my diet, especially liver or any of the digestive organs. After researching the benefits of liver and the organs, I decided to start with gut and digestion to get my digestive system right. Along with diet and hard and soil supplements, I was able to clear my psoriasis and have worried less about my cancer returning. When I ran out of supplements, I definitely noticed a difference in how I feel. I highly recommend these supplements. Thanks to Paul Saladino, his team at Heart and Soil, and his videos, I have been able to take my health back. You can find gut and digestion at heartandsoil.co. Gut and digestion contains tripe, which is stomach, intestines, pancreas, liver, and spleen, all of the digestive organs, and the anecdotes, the comments, the reviews of this are amazing. There are, simply put, unique compounds in the gut that are important, that are essential for healing your gut. So many things trigger issues in the gut. I talk about it in this podcast. So many things trigger inflammation, endotoxin, damage to the gut. If you need more organs in your diet, like so many of us do, check out gut and digestion at heartandsoil.co. On this week's podcast, I wanted to do a high-level podcast, a frequently asked questions answer podcast. This is like an AMA, but I'm answering your most frequently asked questions on YouTube, on Instagram, on the DMs, et cetera, via email. And in this podcast, I wanted to go high level, like I said, so not a lot of articles to show in this podcast, but as I mentioned in the podcast, there are tons of references to previous podcasts where I have done deep dives on all of these topics. So this is a good high level podcast where I address frequently asked questions like, doesn't meat cause cancer? Doesn't meat cause gout? Doesn't meat cause cardiovascular disease? What is insulin resistance? How do I fix it? What causes it? How do I fix diabetes? What are the deficiencies on a vegan diet? Are there deficiencies on an animal-based diet? And so on. So enjoy this Frequently Asked Questions high-level podcast. And if you want to know where to find deep dives, you can just search on YouTube or any of the podcast platforms that you listen on to find my name and the topic that you're interested in if you want more research and really comprehensive analysis of any of the topics I cover in this podcast. I want to give a shout out to my sponsors. This podcast is free and they make this possible. I want to start with MerrickHealth.com. Merrick Health is the premier telehealth platform that connects customers with partnered providers focusing on hormone optimization and preventive medicine. It's really cool that they do this because very few doctors, let alone telehealth platforms that allow you to connect with a doctor anywhere, focus on hormone optimization and preventive medicine. You can find them at MerrickHealth.com M-A-R-E-K, health.com. And the cool thing about Merrick is they let you order your own set of labs. You can do self-service labs. You can order whatever labs you want. You can work with a provider there who will recommend labs, or you can order the labs you want, and they'll have somebody from Merrick review the labs with you. And what's really cool is I designed a very affordable panel, the most bang for your buck I could think of with Merrick. It's a Carnivore MD panel. It's priced as low as $243 for self-service labs, and you can get 10% off your first set of labs with the code Paul at MerrickHealth.com. So as you guys know, 
Knowing what's going on with your hormones, knowing what's going on with your labs is essential. In this podcast, I talk about the labs that I think are the most essential to get, and this is the easiest way to do it. So check them out, merrickhealth.com, front slash carnivoremd, or use the code Paul for 10% off your labs. Understanding what's going on is essential for optimal health. Do not leave this to chance. Check your labs, and even if you're doing keto or something, check your blood work, check your thyroid, check your cortisol, check your cortisol to DHEA ratio, You'll see what I'm talking about, and then you can improve on that stuff. Also, I want to give a shout out to my friends at Juve, J-O-O-V-V. It's the new year. Many people are focused on improving their health and wellness, and Juve is one of the best ways to do that because it focuses on improving what matters when it comes to health, your cells. You guys know that I take my health routine seriously, and one of my non-negotiables is getting a daily dose of red light. For years now, I've been using Juve. That's J-O-O-V-V. I love it because it's so relaxing and easy to use. You've heard me talk about them before, but I love the device. It gives me access to red light any time of the day that I want, but I especially like to do it before sleep. And the new Juve products have a, have a mode that is meant to be before sleep that helps you wind down at the end of the day. You guys have probably heard about red light for collagen in your skin, for joint health, for improvements, maybe even for improvements in hormone function, but check them out. It's J-O-O-V-V. Dot com. Juve is offering all of my listeners an exclusive discount on their first order. So J-O-O-V-V.com, front slash Paul, apply the code Paul to your qualifying order. J-O-O-V-V.com, front slash Paul, pick up a Juve today. Some exclusions apply. Health doesn't have to be complicated. Juve makes it simple by helping what matters most, your cells, and making it convenient from your home by getting that red light. So it doesn't matter where you live, even if you're not exposed to the sun much or you're inside, you can get access to this really cool technology through Juve. They're a leader in the field, and I appreciate what they do. J-O-O-V-V.com, front slash Paul, for a special discount for listeners of this podcast. Also want to give a shout out to my friends at Zero Acre. You guys may have heard the podcast I did with Jeff Nobbs, the CEO of Zero Acre, and Tucker Goodrich. Those guys are both wizards. They are very well-versed when it comes to seed oils and the problems of seed oils. If you haven't been to Zero Acre's website, I would recommend you go there, zeroacre.com, Z-E-R-O-A-C-R-E.com. And you can use the code Paul to get free shipping on your first order of their Zero Acre cultured oil, which I'll tell you about in a second. But while you're at the website, you can also look at their white papers and their blog. They have an article on why seed oils cause heart disease and how seed oils lead to obesity that are incredibly detailed and worth you taking a look at. You guys have heard me talk about polyunsaturated fatty acids in seed oils. They're horrible, but they are everywhere. And I love what Zero Acre does because they have figured out a way to make cultured oil and they can get rid of all or the vast majority of the amount of linoleic acid in the oil. They make an oil that just has mostly oleic acid, which is the omega-9 found mostly in olive oil and a little bit of saturated fat. And so you have a liquid oil with essentially no linoleic acid, which is unheard of. It doesn't exist really in most grocery stores, which is why it's really cool what they do. If you've heard me talk about this, you know that seed oils are cheap. <laughs> they found in most restaurants and packaged foods, they are super problematic for humans because of the omega-6 fatty acids and the linoleic acid. But the oil from Zero Acre is an all-purpose cooking oil. And as I said, it's mostly monounsaturated fat and it has very little linoleic acid, lower than even olive or avocado. So if you really want to put a liquid oil on your salad or you really want to cook with a liquid oil, this would be a great one to use. They also put it in an infinitely recyclable aluminum packaging, which blocks UV light and prevents oxidation. It's gluten-free, glyphosate residue-free, allergen-friendly, and 
Whole30, and animal-based approved. You can get free shipping by going to zeroacre.com front slash Paul and claim that deal. But check out what they're doing at Zero Acre. They are really, I think, moving the needle because one of the most incredible things that I hope will happen with Zero Acre is that more restaurants will start using it because restaurants need fryers because you guys want to eat French fries. I get it. And there's not actually not enough tallow in the world to make all the French fries and tallow. So this would be a much better option. I hope we get all the seed oils out of restaurants and I hope that Zero Acre is used in so many restaurants and that you guys will check them out if you want a liquid cooking oil. Last but not least, go to drpaulsalt.com to get your free bag of Kalima sea salt, which is a zero ocean-borne microplastic sea salt. I think this is really cool that they're doing this, guys. It is from the Kalima Bay in Mexico. These are hand-harvested salt by the Salineros there. And what's the problem is that each year, humans dump 8 million tons of plastic garbage into the ocean because that's where your table salt comes from. It breaks down into tiny pieces called microplastics. And that's what forms the core of a lot of salt crystals. That's no good. A new study reveals that microplastics are in 90% of all salt tested. That pisses me off. So customers get their first bag free. It's freaking delicious. It's super crunchy. It's the best finishing salt that I've ever had. Like I said, it's hand harvested from the salt flats in Mexico. And you're supporting the Salineros local economy there. It's 100% all natural, unrefined, handmade. So check them out, drpaulsalt.com to get your free bag of Kalima sea salt. All right, guys, that is it. On to the podcast. On this week's podcast, I wanted to answer some of your most frequently asked questions in my Instagram DMs, in the email, in the YouTube comments. These are the top, I would say, eight or nine questions that I get asked all of the time. Those who listen to the podcast frequently will know many of my answers to these questions, but in this podcast, I will do my best to keep it high level and not get too granular with regard to research. I'll probably show some studies, but many of my podcasts do get pretty detailed, and I want to keep this one high level. If you want more details for any of the answers to these questions, you can reference previous podcasts that I have done. I've done podcasts answering all, every single one of these questions that are over an hour in length. On this podcast, I'm going to try and answer eight or nine questions in that amount of time. So if you want a deep dive for any of these questions, search my podcast on YouTube, search my podcast on Spotify or Apple, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you will find in-depth deep dives on all of these with tons of science. So let's get into the first most frequently asked question and get this party started. So the question is, what is insulin resistance and how can I be metabolically healthy? I think this is an incredibly important question because I believe that insulin resistance, which is not my favorite term, I prefer metabolic dysfunction. These are synonyms. I believe this pathology is at the root of so many chronic illnesses today. Cardiovascular disease, much autoimmunity. Yes, your metabolic health and your immune system. We know these are linked intimately. Cancers, dementias, psychiatric diseases, these are all connected with some degree of underlying metabolic dysfunction. The Western medical system, which I am a part of, I suppose, having gone to medical school and residency, being board certified, but I don't practice medicine anymore. I don't see patients. We as doctors love our diagnoses. There are over 10,000 diagnoses within medicine. And I think that this is in part due to our flawed paradigm of diagnosis. We want to categorize things into individual pigeonholes 
We're making up diagnostic names for pathological processes in the body so that we can have an individual drug or drug cocktail for that disease and then pat ourselves on the back thinking that we've identified it and we know what to do. The problem with this is that it doesn't correct the root cause of any of these things. When you start thinking a little more deeply, what you find is that many of these illnesses have similar roots. And if you keep pulling on that thread, if you keep diving down the rabbit hole, I believe what you will arrive at is metabolic dysfunction driven by a number of things at the root of so many diseases. Now, I wanna be clear that all the doctors I've ever met are incredibly intelligent and well-intentioned. The fault lies in the system, I believe, not in the hands of individual doctors. As doctors, we do what we've been taught and often our lives do not allow the time to think outside of the box, read all of the articles, connect the dots in ways that were not shown us in medical school or residency. Doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs all serve valuable roles. I think the fault is in the medical system. It's gonna be hard to change that, but hopefully if enough people begin thinking this way, both within and without of the medical system, we can make inroads toward that end. I was speaking with another doctor friend recently and he told me that at the medical school where he is, they won't let him talk to medical students anymore <laughs> because he believes meat is good for humans. And within medical schools, a lot of the paradigms, a lot of the zeitgeist has been captured and is trending toward a plant-based narrative, which is unfortunate. But back to the original question, what is insulin resistance? Insulin resistance, from my perspective, is a failure of your muscles, your liver, your brain, other tissues of your body to respond to the actions of insulin when it binds to its receptor on the cell surface. We could get a lot more detailed with that. We could look at the insulin receptor. We could look at downstream cascades of the insulin receptor, but I don't think those are critical. Now, there are two different types of insulin resistance that are important to consider. There is physiologic insulin resistance and there is pathologic insulin resistance. Physiologic insulin resistance is something I've mentioned on previous podcasts. This is what happens when you eliminate carbohydrates from your diet or when you fast. Yes, when you don't eat or you eat predominantly fat and protein, you become insulin resistant. I actually don't think this is a great thing, but it is a survival mechanism that humans have employed for hundreds of thousands of years. I don't think it's the optimal state for humans. You can listen to my previous podcasts on why I'm not a fan of long-term ketogenic diets, and I would define long-term as anything over than a few days. Many of you won't even get into ketosis by then, but the high-level summary of that is declining thyroid hormone production, increasing cortisol at the level of the adrenals, increasing stress on the body in other ways, increased production of advanced glycation end products like methylglyoxal, decreased hormone production, testosterone, increased sex hormone binding globulin, which means decreased levels of free testosterone, et cetera, et cetera. Decreased fertility. We know that progesterone can decline in a ketogenic diet. I've seen this over and over that when women go keto, their cycles shorten or they become amenorrheic. A ketogenic diet is essentially a stress to the human organism and it creates physiologic insulin resistance because if you're not taking in glucose in your diet in the form of polymers, amylose, amylopectin, or simple sugars like fructose, glucose, or sucrose, or lactose in the foods you're eating, your body has to make it, and that is gluconeogenesis. That is part of a, quote, stressful situation for the human body, driven by cortisol, driven by catecholamines. In a ketogenic state, do not confuse the way you feel with health. What do I mean by that? Oftentimes, people will say, I feel so turned on when I go into ketosis. 
physiologically speaking, that's your body upregulating stress hormones. That is increased catecholamines, adrenaline, aka epinephrine, et cetera, norepinephrine, cortisol. That is increased stress hormones. That is not a good physiologic state for your body. That is your body saying, get up out of your sleep and go find some freaking carbohydrates. Go dig up a tuber, go find some fruit, go find some honey because we don't want to be in ketosis. So do not conflate a low carbohydrate state with feeling good and believing that that's a healthy thing. Because if you measure your physiology, you will find that you are in a stressed state. You have high catecholamines, you have high stress hormones, you have high cortisol. That's really not able to be argued. But so often people will think that that's a good thing, but it's not a good thing. So that is a state of physiologic insulin resistance because in a state of ketosis or low carb, your adipocytes, your fat cells will release free fatty acids. When insulin is low, your fat cells release free fatty acids into the blood. That is a process known as lipolysis. And those will signal to the muscles and the rest of the body to become insulin resistant. That's the same end physiology that happens in pathological insulin resistance, but I'll describe the difference in a moment. Nevertheless, in ketosis, that results in issues, I think, for humans. That sends signals that are problematic that I just mentioned. And that's not the way you want to be. There are many discussions that I've had on the podcast more recently with Georgie Dinkov, and I'll have more in the future regarding the problems of being in a state of lipolysis, which is when free fatty acids are released from the adipocytes. Insulin's role is to stop free fatty acids being released. Insulin's role is to stop lipolysis. Oftentimes, insulin is considered an anabolic hormone, but it's actually really more accurately anti-catabolic. So insulin has been given a bad rap, but insulin-induced insulin resistance isn't very common. I think it's essentially vanishingly rare in humans. The problem arises creating pathological insulin resistance when our fat cells break. I think most people who have read the literature would agree with this. And how do our fat cells get broken? Well, they get broken by a couple of mechanisms. I think the most common one is excess polyunsaturated fatty acids. I've done lots of podcasts on polyunsaturated fatty acids and the way that they are incorporated into the cell membranes of fat cells, the downstream collateral damage from their byproducts of breakdown, spoken about this with Tucker Goodrich and Jeff Knobs, 4-HNE, other oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism are very closely linked to adipocyte dysfunction, a dysregulation of adipocyte division leading to adipocyte hypertrophy, which is the growth of fat cells rather than fat cell hyperplasia. So high level, what am I saying here? Insulin resistance is when insulin can't do its job at different tissues in your body. It can happen physiologically when you don't eat carbohydrates because your body is trying to spare the glucose that's made from gluconeogenesis for tissues that depend on this. Testicles, red blood cells, your brain, kidneys, adrenals a little bit. But in a state of pathological insulin resistance, you have stuffed your fat cells with way too much polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are accumulating in your body. You don't get rid of them very easily like you can with monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fats. This leads to the fat cells leaking free fatty acids and inflammatory mediators, even in the presence of insulin and carbohydrates. So that is the difference between physiologic insulin resistance and pathologic insulin resistance. In the former, there are no carbohydrates present and insulin is low. In the latter, insulin is actually high and there can be carbohydrates present. And because insulin is high and the liver is insulin resistant, you have inappropriate gluconeogenesis in pathological insulin resistance, and that leads to elevated blood sugars. As I've spoken about recently on the podcast, many people believe that diabetes is because you are eating too much sugar. That is false. <laughs> or that your rising blood sugars and diabetes are because you are eating too much sugar. Again, it's false. 
Most of the rising blood sugars and diabetes are related to inappropriate gluconeogenesis. The liver making glucose because it is resistant to the signals of insulin, which will turn that off. So this is not something I will go into detail on this podcast, but I have discussed in many previous podcasts. I don't think carbohydrates are bad for diabetics. They will raise your blood sugar if you are diabetic or not, but there are good studies with large amounts of honey over 100 grams per day in diabetics showing that these lower fasting insulin and fasting glucose leading to improved insulin sensitivity, which is what you want. They do raise blood sugar. And in that study, hemoglobin A1C at the end of the trial was slightly higher in the group that got honey than the group that didn't. But the group that didn't get honey didn't have any improvements in fasting glucose or fasting insulin. And the difference was only about 10 milligrams per deciliter average between the two groups. So yes, eating sugar and honey will raise your blood sugar, but I don't think this is a bad thing at all. And I wanna say this, I think that the obsession with glucose levels in the blood is misguided. We use glucose levels in the blood in Western medicine to diagnose diabetes and to tell if you are in a diabetic crisis. Beyond that, I think we are paying too much attention to glucose levels in the blood, and this is creating inappropriate stress in our minds. I've seen so many people talking about concern that their blood sugar is going over 100 milligrams per deciliter because they ate a strawberry or a handful of blueberries or a banana or, God forbid, some honey or maple syrup. That is not something to worry about. It is normal physiologically and healthy to have your blood sugar raise 20, 30, even 40 milligrams per deciliter from fasting when you eat carbohydrates. That's okay. Don't fear that. If your blood sugar raises 80, 90, 100 milligrams per deciliter or more, or stays elevated above 180 or 200 milligrams per deciliter for long amounts of time after you eat carbohydrates, you are essentially pre-diabetic or right at the threshold or even frankly diabetic. You've gone through the door. In that case, pay attention and make the changes you need to make, which are essentially removing polyunsaturated fatty acids from your diet, predominantly seed oils, which are rich in omega-6s, but also lowering things like cortisol, which can be increased from other ways in your life, of course, sleep, stress, et cetera. So this leads into a follow-up question that I got, which was, how do I fix diabetes? And the answer there is change your diet. Change your diet. Do a little bit of moderate exercise, but change your diet. And that change in your diet doesn't necessarily mean removing all carbohydrates. I think that many carbohydrates that we eat can contribute to diabetes more than others. Specifically, what am I talking about? I'm not a fan of grain-based carbohydrates. I'm not a fan of legume-based carbohydrates. If you heard me talk to Georgie Dinkov on a previous podcast, we talked about starches and how these can actually cause problems in the gut. Soluble fibers can lead to overgrowth of bacteria in the large intestine, leading to increased endotoxin aka lipopolysaccharide, and that can drive cortisol and inflammation in the human body. So I don't think that grains and beans are good sources of carbohydrates for humans. Well, where am I supposed to get my carbohydrates from, Paul? Fruit, honey, maple syrup, provided that it's in glass and that it's a good maple syrup without caramel color. These are simple carbohydrates. They don't come with the soluble fiber. They don't come with the anti-nutrients that will inflame your gut and cause issues. And I realize this is a very controversial position. This is not the normal position that people take. One of the things that I pride myself on in the work that I do is trying to help you all be curious, trying to ask questions and share ideas that I have so that you will do your own research. Don't take anything I'm saying as canon. Do your own research, but be curious because there are studies from the 1960s in which diabetes was cured, cured, by giving people pure sugar. 
To say that sugar causes diabetes is to grossly misunderstand the physiology of this process. So sugar doesn't cause diabetes. Do I think humans should eat sugar? Absolutely not. I don't see any role in the human diet for a micronutrient bereft substance like sugar. As you've heard on previous podcasts, high fructose corn syrup is very different than white sugar. If you're in a pinch and you have to eat white sugar, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, but I don't eat it. Why would you? Getting some fruit, some fruit juice, some honey, some maple syrup, some lactose and milk, if you tolerate that, these are great sources of carbohydrates that will be beneficial for you by letting your body have the signal of abundance. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, not including those or not including enough of those, which is a very common mistake, leads to increased cortisol, increased catecholamines, increased epinephrine, norepinephrine, and decreasing of thyroid and other hormones. This is not what you want. So where's the happy medium? Fruit, honey, maple syrup, fruit juice, raw milk, these are good carbohydrates for humans. Including those in your diet in moderate amounts, depending on your activity level and what you need, and getting rid of polyunsaturated fatty acids, that is the road to fixing diabetes. At a high level, you fix diabetes by improving the quality of your diet. I heard one of my friends use a word that I'd never heard before. Become a qualitarian. I kind of like it. Maybe I'll use it. See if I use it in the next podcast. Improve the quality of your diet. This is what I've always said. Don't lose weight by restricting calories. Lose weight by improving the quality of your diet. What's a good quality diet? Look at my first podcast of this year, Animal Based 101, 2023 edition. That's a quality diet. Organs, either fresh or desiccated like we make at hardened soil supplements. Meat, preferably grass-fed, regeneratively raised. Fruit, fruit juice, honey, maple syrup. Let's answer the quick question, how many carbs should I eat? I think most people need at least 100 grams of carbohydrates a day, at least. Probably you're gonna do better with 125 or 150. These days, I'm eating close to 300 grams of carbohydrates or more per day, and guess what? As I've shown multiple times, my blood work, I'm very insulin sensitive, my fasting glucose is low, my fasting insulin is low, my HSCRP is low, I'm gonna get more blood work in the next few weeks and we'll continue to share it with you guys. So carbohydrates don't make you insulin resistant. So we've answered two questions. <laughs> Let's just recap both of those. What is insulin resistance? Failure of signaling of insulin and tissues in your body. It can be physiologic when you're low carb or keto. I'm not a fan of that. It's kind of a survival state. I don't think it's good for humans. I don't believe it's a hormetic. I think it's just a bad thing and it signals starvation and scarcity and you want to signal abundance. I don't think fasting is a good thing. We know it leads to lean muscle mass loss. We know it leads to decline in hormones. I'll talk about that more in the future. I'm not even a fan of intermittent fasting anymore. And I know I'm breaking from the norm here, but I don't think this is a good thing. I've done podcasts on longevity in which I talk about the fallacy of calorie restricted diets. Please refer to that if you want a deeper dive there. What causes pathological insulin resistance, polyunsaturated fatty acids, and cortisol related to stress and gut inflammation. What causes gut inflammation? Lectins, anti-nutrients from vegetables, which I'll talk a little about a little more in this podcast, starches, soluble fiber, overgrowth of bacteria in the large intestine leading to increased endotoxin. So that's the high level. Again, there are deep dives for all of these in the podcast archives. Next frequently asked question, doesn't meat cause cardiovascular disease, gout, and cancer? No, it doesn't. In my book, The Carnivore Code, I wrote some great chapters about this. That is an older book. And what's interesting about writing books is that when you freeze your ideas in kryptonite, they often grow and evolve because we are humans. But my views on those things have not changed at all. I continue to believe there is no good evidence that meat causes cardiovascular disease. The only thing that a vegan or a plant-based advocate or someone who is trying to vilify meat with regard to cardiovascular disease could point to are 
observational epidemiology studies. Studies where there's no experiment done, it's just a survey. And what happens is that sometimes in some Western populations, people who eat more meat do tend to have more cardiovascular disease. Well, in Asia, the men that eat the most red meat have the lowest rates of cardiovascular disease, and the women who eat the most red meat have the lowest rates of breast cancer specifically, I believe. And that's a very big study. In fact, that's a conglomerate of multiple studies with over 200,000 participants, if I recall properly. So what's happening in the US? Well, the high level is that we've been told meat is bad for us for so long that the only people that eat red meat these days, other than the listeners of this podcast, of course, are people who are doing other unhealthy behaviors. <laughs> people who are riding motorcycles, smoking cigarettes, going out at night, partying. You can take those for what you want in terms of your value system, but who eats vegetables? Who eats less red meat? Who eats chicken and fish? Well, people that are higher socioeconomic status, people that get mammograms and colonoscopies and don't smoke and play tennis on Sundays. So you can see what's happening here. This is unhealthy user bias and healthy user bias, um, respectively, or what I'm describing in an observational study from which you cannot draw causative inference. So meat doesn't cause cardiovascular disease. Why do we even think that in the first place? Well, because of these observational studies, ignoring the ones in Asia, and probably because the saturated fat in red meat raises LDL. Well, what else do we know about more saturated fat and less polyunsaturated fat in the human diet? Well, that type of a change, while it raises LDL, lowers oxidized LDL and LP little a. The latter two markers are much better indicators of cardiovascular health and cardiovascular outcomes than LDL itself. What we know in Western medicine is that LDL, low-density lipoprotein, is a really crappy metric for cardiovascular disease risk. Some may say, what about ApoB? ApoB is essentially the same thing as LDL. There are a few other particles that carry ApoB other than LDL, VLDL, and LP little a included in that, but ApoB will track with LDL the majority of the time. And guess what? If you eat saturated fat and you limit seed oils, your ApoB is going to go up a little bit. But if your thyroid works well, and you are getting enough carbohydrates, your LDL and your ApoB won't go up that much, but any rise in ApoB would trigger the alarm bells of most physicians today. And I think there's not much good evidence at all to say that an isolated rise of ApoB or LDL in someone that is insulin sensitive carries any increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Again, I've done many podcasts on deep dives on this. I'm giving you guys high level here. You can go back and listen to those if you want. But there are multiple studies that show that in individuals, with high HDL, quote unquote, low triglycerides and elevated, quote, LDL, there is very little to any increased risk of cardiovascular disease. That is a healthy triad. Most recently, my LDL was 130 milligrams per deciliter. That's the lowest it's been in a while. And I attribute that to probably improved thyroid function as I've increased carbohydrates, perhaps related to um, getting my iron stores down a little bit. You can listen to previous podcasts if you're curious about what's going on with that and why I'm doing phlebotomy right now. But what is consistent on my blood work is that I am insulin sensitive, a fasting insulin of less than three. Any doctor, nurse practitioner, PA, clinician that looks at your lipids but doesn't get a fasting insulin is missing the context, is missing the context. And I will say that strongly over and over. If any physician looks at your LDL and tells you it's too high without looking at your insulin sensitivity, they are missing the boat. So you must interpret lipids in the context of insulin sensitivity. And that is why a little bit of saturated fat, a moderate amount of saturated fat, a lot of saturated fat in meat doesn't raise cardiovascular risk because if you're doing that, if you're eating meat and organs to get the nutrients and you're not eating seed oils and you're not eating grains, 
your inflammation should be low, endotoxin should be low, your cortisol should be low. Hopefully you're sleeping well and getting morning sunlight, maybe getting some real vitamin D from sun exposure on your skin or supplementing with vitamin D. And you're eating a nutrient rich, high quality diet, you are going to become insulin sensitive. And that alone will be the single greatest prognosticator. That will be the single greatest mover in lowering your cardiovascular disease risk. I think of an example here, which is a little bit close to my heart. And it's that it has been really freaking hard to get my dad to stop drinking Glucerna. Glucerna is a weight loss drink that he's drinking that includes soybean oil. He's had improvements with weight loss when he's drunk that in the past, probably due to increased satiety, but he's never measured a fasting insulin, nor have his doctors. And my dad is an internist. He's a retired internist. He's a doctor. His cardiologist, his endocrinologist, his internist, the doctor he sees, none of these people have ever checked his insulin sensitivity. And I fear that as he has lost weight, he has become more and more insulin resistant more and more metabolically unwell, more and more visceral fat, which nobody's checking. He's just looking at subcutaneous fat. And I think as he's losing weight, he's actually becoming less healthy. And when I see him, it kind of breaks my heart because he's sarcopenic. He doesn't have a lot of muscle and he doesn't look that well. So I don't think my dad listens to this, but uh, maybe somebody can forward it to my dad <laughs> and we'll change his mind. Uh, good luck with that one. So anyway, just because you're losing weight doesn't mean that you're getting healthier you must understand the root cause of these illnesses and have meaningful metrics in your evaluations. Just because you feel good on keto doesn't mean that all that cortisol and catecholamines are doing good things for you either. So what about meat and gout? I have a whole podcast on this as well. No, meat doesn't cause gout. Here's the rub. Eating meat, eating organs, eating fruit will not raise your uric acid if you are insulin sensitive. I've checked my uric acid countless times and it's always been below four. And I don't think there are many people who can claim to eat as much meat, organs, and fruit as I do right now. If we believe the canonical view that the fructose and fruit, fruit juice, honey, or maple syrup, and the purines in the meat and organs I eat will automatically raise your uric acid in geometric proportion to the amount that you eat them, my uric acid to be sure should be through the roof, but it's not. And I've never had gout. So Granted, my genetics might be favorable, but I've seen this countless times, and there's good evidence in the medical literature that this is not the complete story. Surprise, surprise. We've seen that so many times that we are constantly presented with just part of the equation when it comes to these pathologies. Eating meat, eating organs, either fresh or desiccated, eating fruit will not raise your uric acid if you are insulin sensitive. So, what is the question that follows? Well, somebody will say, I'm obese and I'm diabetic and I'm insulin resistant. Can I eat those things? Absolutely. Just follow your uric acid. If you have a history of gout, be aware. And maybe you can't eat as much of those things until you get insulin sensitive. But I will tell you this. If you have insulin resistance, changing your diet can improve your insulin sensitivity in a matter of weeks. This was a hotly debated, contested, and I think often overlooked issue during the last viral debacle. Um, people would say to me when I was really passionate about the lack of discussion of metabolic health and dietary quality change in the mainstream narrative that how can you expect someone who's obese to improve their diet and they won't be able to improve their diet or lose enough weight quickly enough to decrease their risk of pathology related to the virus. Um, I said, well, you can improve your insulin sensitivity pretty damn fast if you change the quality of your diet. So 
Regardless of where you are, I think many of the same interventions work. If you have a history of gout, maybe don't eat quite as much meat or have as many organs or as much fructose, but manage those things. And quickly, you will become insulin sensitive or improve your metabolic dysfunction to a point that you can gradually increase those foods. Those foods didn't cause it. They're not the root cause, and they are the most nutrient-rich sources of nutrition and nourishment for you. Last one is cancer. Doesn't red meat cause cancer? Again, the answer is no. There's no good evidence that red meat causes cancer. This gets into a whole mTOR conversation. Again, there are many podcasts going deeply down this rabbit hole. Look, mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin, is essential for proper human health. You activate it when you work out. You activate it when you lift weights. You activate it when you exercise. You activate it when you fast. You cannot avoid mTOR. And you won't avoid mTOR by avoiding meat because carbohydrates also activate mTOR. Anything that builds your body up and makes it strong activates mTOR. Don't fear mTOR. Don't overemphasize AMP kinase. You don't want to overfast. In fact, I don't think you should fast at all. You will always have periods where mTOR is low because you'll be sleeping. Unless you're sleepwalking and sleep eating Cheetos and polyunsaturated fatty acids and foods that are high in starches that are irritating for your gut, you'll always have periods where your mTOR is off. That's all you need, in my opinion. We really don't have good evidence that eating meat triggers excess mTOR, and this directly leads to cancers or any of these issues. This is a conflation of the medical data, and I would recommend that you listen to my deep dive podcast and read the chapter of my book in which I talk about that. Just because there are people known as Laurent dwarves that don't have high rates of cancer and don't have mTOR doesn't mean that turning on mTOR by doing things like eating meat, which creates healthy, strong bones and muscles and ligaments and protects you from age-related muscle loss and sarcopenia and fractures, which are the real killer, doesn't mean that that will lead to cancers. In fact, I think that the main drivers of cancer are excess lipolysis, permeability of fatty acids, permeability of cell membranes related to excess polyunsaturated fatty acids, and underlying insulin resistance. Yes, we're back to the same pathologies. Meat doesn't cause cancer. The WHO report on that is incredibly corrupt. You can listen to my breakdowns of that in the past. There's a great article by one of the members of that committee, David Clurfield, who was on the committee in 2015. The reanalysis and the more detailed analysis came out in 2018. The majority of members of that committee were vegans and vegetarians, and so many studies were left out of that consideration. There were only 14 observational studies, I believe, give or take a few studies in that analysis. They left out all of the interventional studies. They did not include any animal studies in the WHO judgment. And eight of those 14 studies, if I remember properly, showed no association between red meat and cancer. Six did, but only one of those six showed that that association was statistically significant. And that one study out of 14 is why the WHO believes that meat causes cancer. That's crazy. And that single one study was done in Loma Linda, California, which is a known Seventh-day Adventist community, a group where healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias are very strong because the mainstream narrative in Loma Linda is that if you are eating meat, you are doing something that is bad for you. And the people that are eating meat in Loma Linda are very rebellious. And in fact, in that study, you can see that the people who ate meat will also very much more likely to be obese and diabetic and unwell. And yet that is where the association between red meat and cancer came from. Well, does diabetes increase your rate of cancer? Yes. Does obesity? Yes. Is red meat? No. Red meat's getting pulled into the fray inappropriately. So don't blame red meat for the things that grains that are irritating for your gut, seed oils, high fructose corn syrup. Listen to the last week's podcast about the differences between that and sugar or sucrose. Those are what are causing the problems, not red meat, but often red meat gets pulled in. One of the more, one of the other interesting questions I get asked frequently is how did we evolve to eat meat? Well, none of us has a time machine. I wish we all did because it would be a really interesting 
excursion adventure, and it would settle a lot of online debate if we had a time machine. Um, we could go back to so many different times in history, but certainly I think that I would go back to prehistoric times, hunter-gatherer times, maybe the moment, maybe the series of years, maybe the time when our primate ancestors came down out of the trees. The most accepted theory now is that two to three million years ago, there was a shift in the topography in the East African Rift Valley. I've been there. I've seen these places. They're pretty amazing. And that those were where the first, quote, homo uh, genus individuals arose from Australopithecines, Homo habilis, Homo erectus. There is a place called the Latoli Gorge where we see footprints that are millions of years old. Skeleton of Lucy was discovered near there, which is, an, which is one of the earliest Australopithecus fossilized remains that we have. But somewhere there was a change from Australopithecus to Homo, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Homo heidelbergensis, and eventually Homo sapiens. And I think a very compelling hypothesis is that what happened in the time was that we began eating more meat. We know that our brains became much more powerful and large during that period as well. If you look at the size of the, quote, human and human history brain, we see that for millions and millions of years as primates, our brains stayed the same size. And then they gradually started to rise as we were Australopithecus. And then somewhere around Homo erectus, they really began to grow in size. And that is also the time period in which we see things like stone tools, cut marks on bones, fossilized remains of animals, and mass graves of animals, suggesting there was a massive increase in hunting around that time, providing us with unique nutrients, calories, saturated fats, DHEA, EPA, micronutrients like pyridoxine, vitamin B6, riboflavin, folate, livers full of vitamin A, all sorts of nutrients that were in short supply. Prior to that, when we were mostly frugivorous or omnivorous primates or primate hominids eating very little amounts of meat, perhaps previously scavengers, when we could hunt our own animals, we had much earlier access to the organs, to larger bounties of fat and organ meats and muscle meats, which provided calories and again, unique nutrients for humans. So that is a very interesting hypothesis. Wrapped into this discussion is the very factual true statement that animal foods contain so many nutrients that are not found in plant foods, which is why a vegan diet doesn't work well, which is another frequently asked question I get. What nutrients might be missing on a vegan diet? Well, creatine, carnitine, choline, anserine, taurine, vitamin A in a bioavailable form in the retinal palmitate form as opposed to beta carotene, significant amounts of riboflavin, how about zinc that's bioavailable, selenium, the list goes on and on. Biotin, it is a huge list of nutrients that are really only available in significantly bioavailable forms in appreciable quantities in animal foods. And every single one of those nutrients that I just rattled off has critical roles in human biology and allows us to be optimal humans in terms of fertility, virility, libido, strength, recall, mental clarity, reaction time, athletic performance. We critically need those nutrients. Creatine, for instance, has been shown to improve the intelligence of creatine deficient vegetarians, which all of them are, because there is no creatine in the plant kingdom, when it is administered to them in either 20 gram loading doses or five gram loading doses over a longer period. But vegetarians improve card sorting and memory tasks when they are given creatine, a nutrient that is exclusively found in meat. The counter plant-based argument is that we can make creatine in our bodies. And yes, we do, but we don't make nearly enough. And we know that human bodies love, they soak up, they store, they use creatine from our diets immediately. They store it, they use it, 
and they love it, and it makes us stronger and faster. Creatine is one of the most researched ergogenic performance-enhancing substances in our medical literature, and that is exclusively found in animal foods in appreciable quantities. How much creatine is optimal? A few grams a day, which you can get in a pound of meat, or if you really want to load, you can do supplementation with 20 gram loading doses. But most of us who eat a pound, a pound plus of meat per day are probably getting plenty of creatine over time. The loading dose again is five grams of creatine per day an amount found in just over two pounds of meat. So that's a lot for most of us. But I think that if you're eating slightly less than that, you might need a longer time than a month to actually load and fill your muscles with creatine. But getting enough creatine is crucial. Creatine makes us smarter and there's no creatine in plant foods. So I think we evolved to eat meat. I believe that eating meat made us human. That's an assertion that I wrote in my book, The Carnivore Code. And I believe that eating organs made us human. I believe that meat is the royal meat, quote unquote, and this is eating organs as well. You guys all know that I'm a huge fan of organs. I'll do podcasts in the future about the benefits of liver and other organs. If you want to get more organs in your diet, get them fresh, get them desiccated like hardened soil, however you want to get them. But again, the nutrients in organs are different than the nutrients in meat. You cannot get enough riboflavin just eating muscle meat you maybe could get enough riboflavin if you add in some fruit and some plants in there. But again, the most bioavailable sources, the best sources of riboflavin, which are essential for proper methylation, are things like heart and liver. There's not much riboflavin in muscle meat. There's not a lot of folate in muscle meat. There's not a lot of copper in muscle meat, which is needed to balance zinc. There's not a lot of biotin in muscle meat. The list goes on and on. Having organs is like the jelly to the peanut butter. Yeah, muscle meat is a good thing to have in your diet. There's a lot of it on an animal when you kill it. But all animals, all hunter-gatherer tribes, Go for the organs first. That's what I saw when I was at the Hadza in Tanzania in 2021. So answered kind of two questions there. How did we evolve to eat meat and what nutrients are deficient on a vegan diet? Let's go into the next one, which is are organs necessary? I started to answer that one quickly. Um, yes, I believe they are. And in fact, there are more and more examples of meat advocates who have found that they are deficient in nutrients when they're only eating meat. So Michaela Peterson recently posted on her social media that she was folate deficient, something that I'd been telling her for years and saying was going to be a problem. She was also probably deficient in riboflavin, vitamin A, and other things that are not found in muscle meat. Yeah, you can get some of that stuff in eggs, but organs are the best source of those. So now Michaela's including liver in her diet, and I think that's going to improve her folate status massively. Now, why do we need folate? Well, any woman that's thinking about conceiving needs folate, so you might want to test that. We know that folate deficiency is connected with neural tube defects. Um, and so folate is also essential for methylation, which drives so many reactions, hundreds of reactions in our bodies, the formation of neurotransmitters, the breakdown of toxins in our diets. You need methyl groups from folate. Riboflavin is also found almost exclusively in organ meats, heart, and liver. And that one is essential for the functioning of the MTHFR enzyme, the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme. If that doesn't function well, if you have polymorphisms at 677 or 1298 positions on that, you will have an elevated homocysteine, another independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So yes, organs are essential in the human diet. They are never left out of any other gatherer diet. How can you get them in? Start with liver. Get a half an ounce per day, the amount of a quarter. Or eat it frozen, eat it sauteed, eat it grilled. If you don't want to eat fresh liver, get desiccated organs. Again, heart and soil supplements has your back covered. Then eat some heart. I love heart. It's high in coenzyme Q10, high in riboflavin. Interesting, unique peptides found in heart. And as I've talked about with Georgie Dinkov, heart also has testosterone. The heart seems to be protected from the catabolic effects of cortisol in the human body. And the testosterone serves part of that role. So heart contains testosterone. I eat 
probably five plus ounces, maybe six ounces of heart every single day. And I love it. I grill it. We can also, you can also get heart and desiccated organs, um, which are easily found. Like I said, heartandsoil.co. What other organs am I loving right now? Thymus. So I've spoken about this recently, but there's evidence that consuming desiccated thymus, freeze-dried thymus, or fresh thymus actually improves the health, the size of the thymic gland in animal models. The thymus is an immune organ that very few of us even know about. It sits behind the sternum. And it's, we're told that it involutes, that it shrinks as we age. But I found it very interesting that in animal studies, if you give these animals desiccated thymus, it can improve the size and the function, the immunologic function of the thymus. Why was no one talking about supplementing with thymus during the recent viral pandemic? Uh, well, I guess I can guess the answer to that. I mean, who eats thymus, right? But again, desiccated thymus is available. That's in our histamine and immune supplement, Heart and Soil, or you can get it fresh from many producers. Although what I've found is that when I talk about some of these organs, they'll sell out. So you have to know a farmer, which means meet your farmers, get these organs fresh. That's how I prefer that you eat them. As many of you will know, testicle contains bioactive testosterone. It's been shown to show up on tests. We have done informed sports testing at Heart and Soil, and the testicle supplement whole package does contain bioactive androgens, including testosterone. So if you want more testosterone, eating testicle is good. Be aware that if you're a professional athlete or someone who's going to be drug tested, you might want to be careful with that one because we don't want positive drug tests from testicle. I did a video on YouTube and a reel on Instagram suggesting that testicles and testicle eating might just be banned from professional sports soon, which I think is kind of hilarious, but beautiful in a, uh, in a, in a karmic way. So when, when we're, when, when the eating of whole animal parts is banned, uh, I think that many more people will appreciate the value of organs. Calcium is another critical part of the human diet. And if you're not getting raw dairy, you can find calcium in bones or microcrystalline hydroxyapatite um, in supplements that contain that kind of stuff. That's like bone matrix from hardened soil. So I think getting calcium is good. You can also get calcium from eggshells. If you eat too much of that, you may get constipated. But microcrystalline hydroxyapatite or calcium carbonate in eggshells are good sources of calcium, but include calcium in your diet because the calcium phosphorus ratio is critical. And again, we're back to organs, bone marrow, important for central fatty acids, stearic acid, uh, immune factors. The majority of the cells in your, the immune cells in your body are made in the bone marrow. And then they go to the thymus to be programmed throughout your life. Again, these are two critical immune organs. And I think that if you care about the health of your immune system, including bone marrow and thymus in your diet are good things. Brain has also been shown to improve cognitive function. Yes, there are studies with desiccated cow brain that show improvement in cognition as humans age. And when the researchers tried to use plant-derived phosphatidylserine, their hypothesis was that it was the phosphatidylserine in the brain that was improving the cognition, it had no effect. So we've not been able to replicate that improvement in cognitive function with desiccated brain by using plant-based derivatives of similar compounds found in brain. So there are probably other nutrients that we're not aware of, peptides, cofactors, et cetera. People often get worried about eating brain, but here's the key. There has never been a case of bovine spongiform encephalopathy in New Zealand. And it's a bovine thing. So if you want to eat brain from lamb, it's probably pretty safe. But if you want to eat cow brain, all of our supplements from heart and soil are sourced from New Zealand. There's never been a case of bovine spongiform encephalopathy there. That one is mood memory and brain. And so if you want to see what desiccated brain does for your mental capacity, check that out or get some fresh lamb brain in the US. You can't get cow brain legally in the US. And there have been cases of Prion diseases, including bovine spongiform encephalopathy in the US, they're very rare. I think it's probably pretty safe to eat cow brain in the radar, but you better know where you're getting it from and it's technically illegal. 
So getting brains is tricky, but lamb brains do exist in the United States and desiccated uh, brain is available from New Zealand easily. So those are very valuable as well. The overarching idea here is eat organs. They will improve the quality of your life. I guarantee it. Get them fresh if you can, meet farmers, get them from regenerative sources. If you can't get them desiccated, that's why I built hardened soil. Another frequently asked question is why are vegetables bad for us? So in the work that I do in the podcast and on social media, I've come to realize there are a number of themes that I'm talking about. These are probably the most important points in the work that I do, the most important ideas that I'm trying to understand, think about, evolve with, grow with myself, and then communicate to you all as best I can. Seed oils are harmful. High fructose corn syrup is harmful. Artificial sweeteners are harmful. And probably the least important one of those four, but still the the four things that I think are harmful for humans are vegetables. The way to frame this in my mind is this. If you're thriving, don't worry about this. If you want to eat some onions or some garlic on your food and you don't have an autoimmune disease and it doesn't give you tons of gas or a rash or interrupt your sleep or make you smell like garlic and nobody wants to be around you too much, then fine, do it. It's okay. But I think that for those of us who have autoimmune diseases, I have eczema and psoriasis, or those of us who have sensitive guts, there is some validity to considering the wild notion that vegetables, the leaves, stems, roots, and seeds of plants contain defense chemicals, and they may not be helping us with our issues. And I have seen so many times, hopefully we'll get a formal study on this soon, but I've seen so many times, which is a lot of anecdote, admittedly, but I think when you have tons of anecdote, it's hard to ignore, and you should start forming some hypotheses and moving on them or experimenting, either yourself or doing your own research, I've seen so many times that people's autoimmune diseases, gut diseases, inflammatory bowel diseases, irritable bowel syndrome, even psychiatric illnesses get better when they get rid of vegetables. So I think there's something here. Does everyone need to get rid of all vegetables? Probably not. But I don't believe that vegetables are foundationally, fundamentally healthy for humans. I named this podcast Fundamental Health many years ago. I was at a gym in Seattle. Uh, shout out to Seattle Bouldering Project. I was asking my friend, what should I name my podcast? Fundamental health. And so I try to talk about things that I believe are fundamentally healthy in this podcast and things that I don't believe are fundamentally healthy. And I think historically, vegetables, the leaves, the stems, the roots and seeds of plants were survival food at best. Yeah, we ate them. Yeah, hunter-gatherers eat them a little bit today, but really only when they're starving. Go visit the Hadza. <laughs> they do not eat 150 grams of fiber per day. They want honey and they want meat, and they want berries. If they're absolutely starving, they might eat some pumpkin leaves. They do eat tubers from time to time, but the men are sort of not that excited about them. I went digging the tubers with the women. The men came along, but the men wanted nothing to do with these tubers. They didn't really care about the tubers. The men love honey. They love berries. They love eating meat from animals. This pattern we see over and over in hunter-gatherer tribes, which is our best approximation of where we've come from as humans. Vegetables are survival food at best but we've elevated them to the pantheon, to the pinnacle of the pantheon, and said that they are the, the most powerful God. And that's just bullshit in my opinion. Vegetables are survival food. They're not great for all humans. And I don't believe there are any key or important nutrients that you can't get in more bioavailable forms, in higher quantities, in, in meat and organs and fruit and honey and raw dairy in an animal-based diet. Sure, you wanna get some fruit for some vitamin C, great. And there are some fruits that we think of as vegetables, squash, avocado, et cetera, that people get confused about. But understand that 
when you're thinking about fruit, there's a lot of plant foods that you can eat. And when you're thinking about vegetables, a lot of things we think of as healthy are not so great for humans. Yeah, I'm not a fan of spinach. Look at my Instagram, see the reel I've done on oxalates. And how many oxalates are in spinach? A ton. These can contribute to kidney stones and other issues. Look at turmeric, tons of oxalates in turmeric. There are so many foods, almonds that have lots of oxalates. These can accumulate in joints, cause kidney stones, not great for humans. Lectins, carbohydrate binding proteins found in things like beans and grains strongly appear to cause issues in the human gut. Gluten is a lectin. It is perhaps the canonical lectin that causes inflammation in the human gut, leading to regression of the small intestinal villi and the autoimmune disease known as celiac. And there is a growing awareness of the fact that some people who are not technically celiac also have pretty bad negative autoimmune reactions to gluten in wheat, in uh, barley, in triticale, in glutinous grains. These are not healthy for humans. Even non-glutinous grains, I think, are not great for humans. We know that rice contains arsenic and heavy metals. We know that oats are very high in phytic acid, a nutrient that can chelate minerals and prevent the absorption of them in the human body. There are much better ways to get carbohydrates in your diet. As I've mentioned, fruit, honey, raw dairy, maple syrup, etc. Vegetables, even leafy greens like kale. Kale's bullshit. You guys have seen me with that t-shirt or that hat. I don't think it's great for humans. It contains compounds of the family from isothiocyanates that will inhibit the absorption of iodine at the level of the thyroid. And though kale is perhaps not the most concentrated source of isothiocyanates, things like Brussels sprouts, chard, et cetera, these have been shown to contain meaningful amounts of isothiocyanates that can significantly impair thyroid function in the amounts we consume them in the human diet. I've shown that study multiple times in the past. So the leaves of plants are not something that plants want us to eat and they contain defense chemicals. People are variably sensitive to these. And I think that again, if you're cooking the crap out of your vegetables and you really just want to eat them to be happy, do it, knock yourself out. But for those of you who are suffering, consider eliminating vegetables from your diet and see if you do better. When you get rid of the vegetables, when you get rid of the grains, the leaves, the stems, the roots, the seeds, include organs, include meat, include fruit, fruit juice, honey, maple syrup, raw milk, whatever works for you, raw dairy, and you will thrive. That's an animal-based diet. That's the whole shift that I am hoping to challenge people to make. I don't think that's the ideal diet for everyone. That's perhaps too restrictive for some people, but I think that diet is a really great starting point for people and includes enough to make it interesting. It includes all the nutrients you need to thrive. That is unquestionable. I've done chronometer on my daily diet, on animal-based diets multiple times and shown that on my podcast and YouTube that everything on chronometer at least is, is in adequate amounts, is in spades in my diet. And I would challenge anyone to show me any nutrients that are deficient in my diet. And um, oftentimes when people have tried to make the challenge, it's just that the USDA database doesn't actually include those nutrients in the foods that I'm eating. For instance, uh, the USDA database doesn't even look at vitamin K2 so it might say that the diet that I'm eating is deficient in vitamin K, but that's an absurdity <laughs> because we know there's a lot of vitamin K2 in things like liver, in even in muscle meat, in egg yolks, in animal fats. These are very rich sources of this in my diet. So I believe that vegetables are not great for humans. They're highly defended. These are the parts plants don't want us to eat in contrast to their fruit, which is sweet and colorful, and that it contains defense chemicals, which are not great for all people. Some people tolerate, don't seem to have major problems with it. But for those of you who do understand that there are now thousands, tens of thousands of people who have found significant improvement in the face of incredulity from their providers, their family, doctors, that eliminating vegetables and focusing on meat and organs, fruit, et cetera, has led to massive improvements in their health. So that is what I hope for all of you to take away from this. But again, it's it's my intention that you become curious, you question everything I'm saying and do your own research. So I answered this question on earlier in the podcast, but does an animal-based diet have any nutrient deficiencies? I don't believe so, but it depends how you construct it. Meat, organs, 
fruit, honey, raw dairy. That's really an animal-based diet in my belief. On my website, Carnivore MD, there's a free animal-based macronutrient calculator. And I think that if anything, many of you are not getting enough carbohydrates. So lean into the carbohydrates. Think about protein at the level of one gram of protein or 0.9 grams of protein per pound of body weight. As a starting point, that can come from dairy, it can come from cheese, it can come from meat, it can come from organs. Get your carbohydrates from fruit, from honey, from raw dairy, et cetera. And I think that you don't need a ton of fiber in your diet. I think fiber is highly, highly overrated. Insoluble fiber, maybe it just passes through the gut. Maybe it even binds up some endotoxin in the gut, but I have some serious concerns about soluble fiber. Resistant starches that have been, again, also like vegetables, just elevated to the deity status are pretty harmful for humans in that they could increase endotoxin at the level of the gut, increase lipopolysaccharide by feeding populations in the large intestine and then leading to inflammation um, throughout the human body, endotoxin leading to triggering of TLR4, et cetera, all these kinds of discussions that I've been talking about more recently. So that I think is the formula for a healthy diet. And I think that if you eat that way, you will not develop nutrient deficiencies. What else do I believe you should do? I think you should get out in the sun a little bit. If you can't get out in the sun, then I think you should take a vitamin D supplement. How much? It'll depend on you. 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 IUs per day. Check your vitamin D. 40 is probably the cutoff. Living in Costa Rica, I don't take any supplements other than hardened soil supplements, which are desiccated organs. And my vitamin D is around 75. If you want to know all of my blood work, you can listen to the multiple blood work podcasts I've done. I, I just want to add at the end of this podcast that another frequently asked question I get is which blood work should I get? Um, there are many labs that I think are useful and I will list them here. You can pause, you can write them down. Uh, I've done multiple podcasts showing my blood work. I think emulating something like that is a good place to start. But the trick about blood work is that you must know how to interpret it or work with someone who is going to be savvy enough to do it. So the basics are things like a complete blood count and a comprehensive metabolic panel. I would add to that a basic lipid panel. I don't really find much value in an NMR lipid panel. If you want to get it, knock yourself out. I do think an LP little a is valuable. I think getting a fasting insulin is essential. I think getting a homocysteine is critical. And I would also get a full hormone panel. What do I mean by that? Get a prolactin, get estrogen, which is estradiol and estrone sulfate. Get testosterone, free in total. Get DHEAS. Get progesterone if you're a woman. Get cortisol, maybe AM and PM. Think about your cortisol to DHEA ratio. Get an iron study. Get ferritin, get transferrin saturation. Get iron saturation. Get TIBC, get total serum iron. Get a PTH, which should be low. It should be in the lowest quartile because if your PTH is above the bottom quartile, I don't think you're getting enough calcium and that leads to problems. Get a full thyroid panel. Free T3, free T4, total T3, T4, TSH, reverse T3, maybe antibodies, anti-TPO and antithyroglobulin. I think that's a good place to start for most people, but that's a pretty comprehensive lab panel and most doctors won't run anything anywhere near that. So in this podcast, I wanted to talk about the frequently asked questions, the high level stuff that I get asked, just to give you guys an idea, a reference for many of you. As I've said, there are many podcasts which go into detail on all of these topics and you can search on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or YouTube carnivore MD and a topic, and you'll find what I've talked about it. Everything in here has a deep dive, at least an hour, probably three to four hours of deep dive, science heavy articles um, for you to really examine this and think about what is best for you and your health. And that's why I do what I do. So see you guys in the next podcast.